Hunter down to the 16th pole. The Gunny Nyquist is coming at him in second. And then Stradivari, followed by Cherry Wine. But Exaggerator has turned the tables. He has won the Freak the Stakes. Coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas, you're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton and Kevin Cook. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 44 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and I'm joined this week by the one and only Kevin Cook. Jeremy Paxton and Dolores Lozano have the week off, and as you heard by the audio in our introduction, the Preakness Stakes were held this past weekend with Exaggerator upsetting the Derby winner, Nyquist, for the win. But Kevin, I think the bigger story is about the tragedies that happened on the track with two horses actually dying on race day. Do you hear about that? I heard about it from you, so you're asking me as though I didn't know that was coming from you. I realized that this is a podcast and we could set it up a little bit differently. But yes, you did tell me about that, and I'm curious to hear why you think it's such a big story. I think it's just absolutely tragic. I mean, I don't follow horse racing outside of the Triple Crown races. And honestly, I'm not going to watch the Belmont Stakes because there's no incentive for me to watch it since there's not going to be a Triple Crown winner this year. But... I think when you look at the broader picture and just do a little bit of digging and research, uh, reports say that there are more than 1,200 thoroughbreds that die each year as a result of horse racing. They're essentially, these horses are drugged. uh, They're not taken care of well. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of tragic to see them essentially run to death. Do you see any parallels between the way those horses are treated and the way we treat athletes, particularly in the NFL? I'm kind of recalling back to episode 35 where we had Steve Almond on. Yeah, I definitely can see parallels. Yeah. I mean, because I I think, uh, you know, back in the past and, you know, 1930s, 1940s, I mean, these these horses were, uh, you know, trained and, you know, they were fed on, you know, hay, oats, water, that sort of thing. And that's not the case anymore. Well, what you're mentioning is that uh, a lot of times there are hairline fractures, uh, other injuries that are not diagnosable by vets, uh, at least they're on the track, and they have to run. They're, they're you know, uh, in big stakes races where they have to run and compete, kind of like football players, the way we keep them doped up on pills. A lot of them end up with prescription painkiller addictions, which can blow up into addictions to street drugs, uh, which can manifest in all sorts of um, psychiatric and, and psychotic disorders that players have after playing, particularly when you think about CTE and what that does to their brains. And so we do, as a culture, I think, have a problem of pushing athletes, in this case, horse athletes, to perform even when their bodies aren't ready to. And I think it's important that we ask ourselves, what are we asking of the uh, of the entertainment that we are, we're taking in? You know, what are we asking of the horses, people, whatever, that are put out there to perform for us? Yeah, that's a very strong point and a, a very good parallel between the sport of horse racing and football. But I actually did see a tweet yesterday, I believe it was from Keith Law. I'm kind of paraphrasing this, but uh, one of the horses died because of a broken ankle and uh, he was trying to use that to justify it and say oh you know it, it just was a freak injury and so uh, Keith Law responded to that person he said at the end of the day these two horses died doing what they loved best and that's running around on a dirt track and having degenerate gamblers lose money on them so I, I don't know I kind of thought that was uh, a little bit humorous can you put money on a horse to die during a race because that seems like a safe bet given the stats we're hearing you know probably not at the horse track um, but I'm sure Bovada probably has prop bets. Absolutely. I sh- I'm going to bet on them to die because it sounds like that is a dangerous sport to put horses in. <laughs> yeah, but, and, you know, kind of transitioning here from uh, horse racing, there was some uh, big news on the U of H front Friday afternoon. Tell us about that. Uh, are we referring to Tillman Fertitta and way he came out firing? That's right. Okay, so my I was um, I had not laid any judgment on Tillman Fertitta yet what I thought of him in terms of representing U of H being the uh, board of chairman board of regents chairman rather and uh, but he did come out talking to CBS recently and uh, called out the big 12 let's see I'm gonna pull up some quotes here uh, this guy billion dollar buyer have you seen the show I have not seen the show I have seen the show it is um, it's moderately entertaining it's not like terrific but it's uh, it's no Shark Tank is what you're saying I don't think Shark Tank is that entertaining I, I would actually put them about on par Shark Tank probably slightly more entertaining Mark Cuban a more entertaining personality than Tillman Fertitta but Mark Cuban does not represent the University of Houston, so I obviously have a little more interest in Tillman. But uh, Tillman said, uh, talks about adding Houston to the Big 12. It makes Big 12 a power conference. He's basically saying they're not a power conference the way they're currently constituted. Um, they certainly are weaker than they've been in history. It's kind of disappointing that Texas, with their big budget, fears the University of Houston. For other schools in the Big 12 to keep them out because they're scared of them, men need to be men. 
So throwing down there, getting a little misogynistic. I'm not sure how Dr. Couture, um, the president, uh, feels about that, but uh, certainly calling them out. He says, I've never feared competition. It's disappointing schools in the Big 12 fear competition. And this goes back to when we were in the Southwest Conference and we won. Our basketball teams won and our football teams won, and that's where it all comes from. So I have to say, I was not I was not sold on Tillman. Uh, I thought he was a bit of a loudmouth. I still think he's a bit of a loudmouth, but I like what he's doing with that loudmouth of his, and uh, I'm fired up this week. He's got a platform for people to listen, so uh, I'm not sure that his comments are actually going to result in any action in U of H getting into the Big 12, but it's nice to see the you know the head of your board of regents stick up for the university like that, especially when you have a profile such as Fertitta's. He's not diplomatic either. That's one thing. He's, he's not being remotely diplomatic, which I think there's a time and a place for diplomacy, and that's in like foreign affairs, dealing with other sovereign nations. But the Big 12 is not a sovereign nation. Texas is not a sovereign nation. So calling them out in this fashion, I feel like uh, it gets people fired up. And if we can't be in the Big 12, we, I'm obviously a U of H alum, but uh, if U of H can't be in the Big 12, then at least the fan base has that to kind of sink their teeth into and enjoy. Yeah, it seems like we're kind of doing headlines this morning with a, a few key stories. So I guess the big one for my alma mater is obviously the, the situation with Baylor, then the new Outside the Lines report coming. Uh, Pepper Hamilton, which is the law firm that is said to be investigating Baylor and kind of the mishandlings of uh, rape and uh, domestic violence here since, what, 2009, uh, that report has... I guess they've given talking points to the Board of Regents right now, and the Board of Regents is apparently, at the time that we're recording, weighing on what to do with Kinstar, Ian McCall, and Art Bryles. So that's going to be a story uh, worth watching here in the next few weeks and something that we'll continue to dive into. We've already spoken about it three times here on the podcast, and I know this will definitely not be the last time that we discuss this, but uh, kind of a crazy week, and uh, you know what always makes a crazy week better? I think I do. Is it snacks? It's snacks. Desserts, even. Snacks. Snacks is sort of pejorative. That would imply something of a lower quality. Snacks would be like a little Debbie thing you buy from the supermarket. I'm talking about desserts. Fine, crafted desserts made from scratch with loving, tender care uh, by the folks at We Desserts. And those folks would be Penny and Jen, who, uh, who own and operate We Desserts at 3411 Kirby. And that's we as in O-U-I. We, uh, yes, in French, as in yes, I would like something delicious. So we have, the two of us, ordered cakes uh, for our mothers for Mother's Day. We've ordered uh, macaroons, large orders of delicious macaroons of all the different flavors you could possibly imagine. Um, there are sticker doodles, my personal favorite, but there's also a chocolate top. Everything in the world you could possibly want. I hope your mouth is watering right now because mine certainly is. I'm, I'm having trouble even speaking. But yeah, they make everything you could possibly want there. And they, you can just go, just go hang out. They got uh, coffee, free Wi-Fi. It's a good place to chill. They've really done the inside very nicely there. And so uh, I, I occasionally go in and visit and uh, with our friends Penny and Jen and just hang out there. But the, the real kicker is that as a listener of this podcast, if you go in and tell them you like the Weekly Brew and you listen to us, you get 10% off of your order. So you only have to pay, and I'm, I think I'm doing my math right here, 90% of what another customer would pay for the same product. So load up. Get a bunch of stuff. Bring it back to your office. You'll be the hero. We desserts at 3411 Kirby right in the heart of Houston, uh, just here near us, actually, off of 59. Yeah, go ahead and tell Penny and Jen that the guys at the Weekly Brew sent you by. And uh, if you want to continue to follow our work on social media, this week we were pretty active, uh, you know, on Twitter and Facebook. But uh, go ahead and search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also find all of our work on weeklybrewcast.com. We kind of post a show rundown there and any kind of relevant stories that might come up Monday mornings. If you subscribe to that website, you actually get a push notification when a new story or item has been posted on the website. So I definitely recommend doing that. Also, we want you to uh, feel confident that you can go to iTunes and leave us some iTunes reviews. Last week, we had two reviews. Uh, This week, we actually don't have any. So Kevin's going to get into that at the end of the show. One thing that Kevin did not mention in his We Desserts topic was that if you go to We Dessert and you leave an iTunes review in front of either Penny or Jen, you actually get a free cookie or free macaroon. And they will they will show you how to do I have I have sat down with both of them. We've done some training classes, some training modules. They're aware of how you go through the process of because occasionally on a phone in particular, it's not easy to leave a review. So they uh, they are very well versed in the step-by-step process and will help you through it. We need those. We're almost at 50, which is for for a show with a listenership of our size, um, you know, only a couple thousand listeners. It is uh, it is very impressive to have what we have, but we really want that large round number of 50. So guys, it would make my week 
and uh, we'll give you a shout out on the podcast if you if you go leave a review we'll read it out loud to uh, all of our thousands of listeners and, and give you special love and you'll be my favorite listener for at least a week you know we have so many great itunes reviews and i think a large part of that is end result of the quality guests that we have on our show and this week we have two phenomenal guests uh first one's going to be kelvin sampson who you'll recall we had on one of the earlier episodes last fall he's the head basketball coach at the university of Houston. we dive into uh, his u of h coups kind of preview the season we actually break down some scheduling news so if you're a u of h fan you might not be aware of some of the games that u of h is going to play this fall uh, so coach sampson dives into that a little bit we also talk a little bit of rockets and nba with him as well and lastly joining us on the show is going to be jason concepcion who is a writer for the ringer formerly of Grantland. we get into uh, kind of the nba sports in general and uh, also a little game of thrones action so we've got a packed show on deck so it's time to sit back relax and be informed you're listening to the weekly brew last fall on the weekly brew podcast kevin was able to go one-on-one with u of h head basketball coach kelvin sampson on episode 16 to preview the kooks 2015-2016 season as we approach the end of may we're happy to welcome back coach sampson to the podcast and coach your team finished last year with a 22 and 10 mark you finished as a number two overall seed in the aac uh, but the Cougs had two tough games to close the season with Tulane and Georgia Tech. How would you assess your club's year, and how do you build on that moving forward? Everything is um, about building uh, here, um, and it's a process. You know, we're yesterday last uh, season was you know part of it. You know, where we when we came in, um, it's all lesson in perspective. You know, I, I tell our our kids uh, and our coaches that. You know, you're always going to have setbacks as you're building. Um, you know, three weeks after we got here in April of 2014, we realized that we had five players um, on the team. So, you know, that's, that's pretty tough having to start in the middle of April recruiting team um, because most of the good players obviously have already uh, decided on the school or at least have the list of schools that they're going to visit, so it's tough to get in on them. But I thought our coaches did a good job of, um, you know, figuring some things out. You know, we, for instance, we signed Devontae Pollard, who was second team off-conference on May 20th. Um, so it's it, every, everything's relevant when it comes to recruiting. But we went into that season with that team. You know, I'll forever be indebted and, and grateful that I was able to um, – <clears throat> Have kids like L.J. Rose and LeBron Barnes, uh, J. Rod Stiggers, uh, Chicken Knowles. Um, you know, those were the kids that were still here. Uh, Adam Drexler. Um, you know, uh, I found out later that, that they had signed a young man named J.C. Washington. Um, so that gave us a sixth player. But but still, we had to go out and sign. I think we signed seven guys. Um but we went into that season knowing that that was, uh, you know, an opportunity to establish culture, uh, get our kids to understand this is what our, we want our program to be known for. Um, and I thought those kids did a great job of that. You know, uh, winning four straight games at the end of the season, I thought helped us going into the off season. And then in the off season, you know, when you win, win 13 games, <clears throat> you know, you don't feel good about your your, your season. But I felt good about the program, uh, and I think there's a distinct difference there. Uh, going forward, we knew we had laid some building blocks, and but we also knew we had uh, a good recruiting class uh, coming in. Um, uh, and, and my assistants did a great job identifying kids. Uh, we had some uh, transfers that that um, uh, bounced our way. Um, but going into uh, the season, we knew we were going to be a lot better, uh, but we also knew that you know, we were going to play a really good schedule um, because our league was, was probably the best it has been. Um, you know, at SMU and Temple, Cincinnati, Connecticut, Tulsa, all those teams were really good this past year. But um, but just to expound on your point about how would I assess the season, I, I, I think we had a, um, a successful season in terms of we, we laid more we, – we, laid more blocks you know we're we 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 built um you know we beat every team in the league uh winning that connecticut winning that temple those those were huge wins um did did it end the way we wanted it to no no but at the same time i mean it's it's 
going to end usually with a loss. Um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, every team's going to lose their last game but two. Uh, the NIT, well, I guess I, I don't even know the name of those other tournaments. There's only two or three teams that's going to end their season with a win. So, um, <clears throat> But, you know, it's, it's really important that you don't allow 40 minutes to define six months. You know, well, um, you know that's that's something I made sure our kids understand that we we went from 13 wins to 22 wins, and our challenge this off season going into the summer uh, next fall uh, before we start practicing in October is put ourselves in a position where we can uh, take another jump, and I think we will. In terms of putting yourself in a position to make that sort of jump, obviously last year was an enormous jump, and I, I, I'm anticipating really strong uh, improvements for this season as well because you're bringing in some guys like uh, Shango Yami, I guess, was already signed earlier in the year, but he'll be playing this coming year. That's a guy who's 6'11", 250 pounds out of Northern Oklahoma College. And then you got uh, Devin Davis out of Odessa College who was recently signed, talking 6'7", 230 pounds. So one thing it seemed like you guys lacked last year was um, certainly not length. You had length, but really size, guys who could bang inside. Do you think you address that need uh in terms of the guys you have coming in this season yeah that's a great point and we and we talked about that um going forward with our recruiting but you know you you don't um you know this isn't walmart or uh, some kind of shopping center (laughs) where you can just go address every need in in one recruiting class um you know for instance last year we we had to get good guards you know with uh rob gray damian dobson ronnie johnson you know, we, we had those three guys um, coming in, and obviously we knew how good they were. I, you know, when, like when you guys see them, it's a surprise to you because you hadn't seen them before. Well, we recruited them, so obviously we knew what they were capable of. Um, but, you know, with Rob, Ronnie, and um, uh, Damian, we knew we were going to be a lot better at guards, but we also knew that uh, um, our four spot, for instance, with uh, Devontae and Chicken, you know they were they had length uh, and athleticism, but we had no girth, uh, and that's where we knew going into this recruiting class we had to address that. But with uh, uh, Devin and um, uh, I call him Big Val, I can't even pronounce his right. name. But uh, with <laughs> Devin and Big Val, I, I think we um, addressed that. But I also think that um, you know uh, Kyle Meyer didn't have a good year. He he would be the first to tell you that. But there's there's two guys that have really stood out to me um, in the spring and the off season, and that's Chicken and Kyle. Those I think those two guys both are going to have really good years. I mean they're they're really locked in. They're in the gym, uh, they're in the weight room, um, they're working with the coaches, our staff. Uh, these guys are, are I think I think are going to be really improved. So while everybody focuses on the incoming guys, you know Armani Brooks, uh, Morris Dunnigan. Those are two really good guards. Uh, Morris, Morris Dunnigan <clears throat> may be the best all-around guard on the team, and, and nobody, of course, you haven't seen him yet, but you'll you'll see what I mean when you watch him play. Armani is the best shooter on the team, so <clears throat> you know I think we've really improved our bench uh, with Armani and uh, uh, Morris because those guys both can play. But uh, up front is probably where <clears throat> we um, had to address losing Devonte, but we did it with a uh, a very good player, but also somebody that gives us some size versus length inside. I'm glad to hear that uh, Kyle and Chicken are in the gym. Obviously, that's that's good to know. And, of course, the gym would be the uh, the vastly uh, improved facilities you guys have, the Guy V. Lewis Development uh, Center, $25 million practice center, which I've been in numerous times, and it is gorgeous. Uh, I think everyone would agree. Uh, how much of a difference has that made in terms of being able to get the kids in, give them effective practice time, also in terms of recruiting? Yeah, you, you hit on the two key things. Number one is called a development center for a reason. Uh, we do not practice there. Uh, we, you know, I've always been a firm believer. Uh, you practice where you play. We play in high fines and that's where we practice. Now, sometimes if we play on the road, we'll stay in and practice here. But for the most part, um, you know, I want our guys shooting as much as possible on their, their, on their own goals. Um, that's why they call it a home court advantage. You get to shoot on your rims. Um, <laughs> but, but the um, the recruiting piece is is uh, is hard to quantify that. Um, for instance, uh, we we live in a a, a a great city for unofficial visits. Um, 
You know, I coached at Washington State University for seven years. I was a head coach there, and I think we signed two players within a 200-mile radius of that campus in seven years. And we had some really good teams. Um, but that was one of the disadvantages of coaching at Washington State was proximity to players. Um, well, here in Houston, that's a huge advantage. You know, other than the month of July, kids can take unofficial, unofficial visits anytime they want, as often as they want. So what we've done is identify the top players in the class of 2017 and 2018, um, and we have them, we get them up here on this campus, and, and we're so proud of this place, before they even throw their car in park, we're snatching, we're snatching the door open, pulling them out, so we're <laughs> here to show them this uh, beautiful facility, but we're very proud of it. I, I can't thank uh, <laughs> our Board of Regents, President Couture, Mac Rhodes, Hunter Yurichek, um, and all the people that helped make this uh, um, dream a reality. You know, we, you know, Dave Mars and his um, uh, wife, um, and I could go on and on. We have so many people to thank for this facility, but it's just now paying dividends. You know, you don't build it, and then all of a sudden it works its magic the day we open. You know, it takes time, and that's where the, the, the when we got here in 2014, 2015, so you, you're, you're working with the 14-15 season, but we knew that the, the two classes that we had to uh, focus on was 17 and 18. 15 and 16 were kind of a done deal. You know, the best players had already identified their schools. These other colleges do a great job. You know, they they they, they had um, marked the kids here, and, and they were down the road with them. But, but we marked the 2017 class and the 2018 class, and those are the kids that we're getting, we're getting in here, and um, it's going to be a big part of uh, – making sure that we continue on this right road. Yeah, and speaking of continuing on the right road, I mean, uh, it seems that you have a lot of recruits starting to buy into the program and see the success that you've been kind of building the last few years at U of H. But uh, I know in the past few years that the NCAA has kind of changed some of its rules regarding, you know, contact with prospective athletes during the summer months, you know, when they're playing on that AAU circuit. Can you walk us through some of those changes and how does that impact you in terms of recruiting and scouting those prospective student athletes? It really starts in April. Um, the only time you can go out in April is uh, all the, all the weekends, and and there, the tournaments are, are are set up at different sites. Um, for instance, uh, New York, Atlanta, Dallas, Kansas City, Indianapolis, Houston. Um, you know, our assistant coaches were out um, all those weekends. Um, you know, not identifying kids, but following the kids that we had already identified. And you never know when you're going to uh, find a sleeper. It's, it's, you know, people say, well, I go to such a small school, nobody will notice me. If you're on an AAU team, you're, you're going to get noticed. Um, but in the summer, <clears throat> you know, you have Nike tournaments, you have Adidas tournaments, you have Under Armour tournaments. Uh, and, and kids are identified based on the, the, the shoe uh, team uh, that sponsors them. Um, for instance, uh, the Harrison twins' father coaches the uh, Under Armour team here. They're called the Houston Defenders. Uh, Marlon Lowe uh, coaches the Adidas uh, team. They're called uh, Team Texas. Um, the uh, Nike team is the Houston Hoops. And then there's other teams um, scattered in around those guys. So uh, there's, there's a lot of really good players uh, in Houston, and there's so many AAU teams. I think there's we counted 14 AAU teams that play out on the circuit. So um, in the month of July, when we're allowed to go out, there's uh, uh, three weekends, 15 days, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, the last three weekends of July. So there's three five-day periods that we're allowed to go out. Uh, we can't go out till 5 o'clock on Wednesday, and you have to be in by 5 o'clock on Sunday. Um, those are, those, are uh, those rules are set in stone. And, most, and there's no problem being out at that time on Sunday, and there's no problem getting in uh, starting on time on Wednesday because that's mm -hmm. that coincides when most AAU tournaments start and end. One thing I'm curious about is last season, uh, you know, obviously you had not scheduled up. Uh, the non-conference schedule was um, – I, I remember you say that it looked more challenging at the beginning of the season than it ended up being at the end of the season. But just given the steps forward that you've made with recruiting, with the team cohesion and the guys you have coming back as leaders on the team, is there going to be an effort to schedule up a little bit more this year in terms of the non-conference uh, games you'll be playing? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it's a very valid point, too, uh, and, and I agree with it. I, I think your schedule should reflect your team. Um, 
this year we um, I looked at the uh, CBS Sports uh, preseason poll. I've seen the ESPN. I think they call them the two early polls, um, ESPN and CBS, and Rhode Island's in both of them. Uh, Rhode Island's high, ranked as high as number 16 in the nation in one. Uh, I've seen Harvard getting a lot of votes, uh, Arkansas getting a lot of votes. So um, we play Harvard at home. We play Rhode Island at home. We go to LSU, and um, we're negotiating a deal right now with Arkansas. So that tells you right there the upgrade that we've had in our, our, our schedule. Uh, and, then, and then the other teams, you know, we've, we've really tried to identify the highest RPI teams. For instance, North Florida was in the NCAA tournament uh, uh, last year, and they've got almost their whole team back. Um, so we're trying to play teams like that, teams that are uh, in some of these other conferences that are predicted to win their league. So, yeah, our, our schedule will be uh, greatly enhanced. We also play an exempt tournament in uh, uh, South Florida. Three, we'll play three games there, and, and there's a lot of uh, Power Fives teams um, uh, and, and, and really good mid-major teams like Mercer and um, Kent State, Hofstra, schools like that. So uh, we, we have a really good schedule this year. U of H last year, it seemed like they played to the level of their opponents. You know, you guys had some, uh, you know, tough games against some teams with lower RPIs. But, you know, when you played SMU, you know, top 15 RPI, you guys were neck and neck on the road, just falling by four points and then actually, you know, beat them at home by three. How important is it for your team to have those, you know, high RPI, high value games? And how much does it, you know, get your team fired up to go and, and play on the road in those like hostile environments? Well, I think it's important to uh, uh, challenge your team. Um, you know, the, the year before, one of the, one of the most difficult challenges we had when we got here in April of 2014 was uh, there was no game scheduled. You know, as hard as, it, as hard as it is to recruit starting in the middle of April, multiply that by five, and that's how hard it is to schedule. You know, you just don't snap your fingers and, and, and go get on people's schedule in April. For instance, our schedule right now is, is pretty much done. Uh, um, you know, we're still in the month of May. So, you know, you, you think about – uh, the difficulty in matching dates and getting teams to, to uh, um, uh, play you, whether it's home or away. But one of the things that we found out, especially this offseason, because of the improvements that the program's made um, and, and, you know, the direction we're going, a lot of teams won't play us, uh, especially home and home. You know, we, you know uh, like there's some really good mid-major programs but if I'm going to play somebody from Ohio, I'd rather play Ohio State. If I'm going to play somebody from uh, Florida, I'd rather play the University of Florida. <clears throat> okay, let's play those schools. Yeah, well, <laughs> you got to get them to agree to it. Um, and, that's, and that's something that's difficult. You know, that's why I appreciate LSU playing us. Uh, um, Arkansas, you know, they're, they're thinking about playing us. And, and that's not easy to do. I mean, I think it's harder – Sometimes it's harder to get a, the kind of schedule you need or you want uh, than it is to recruit. Uh, it takes two to tango. Well, I'm curious. You said you, at, at times the, uh, the style of play you guys had last season reflected the personnel that you had on the floor and the talents of the guys you were working with. So you did have one of the best, oh, actually the best offense in uh, the AAC at 77.4 points per game, and you emphasize offensive rebounding. I'm just curious, based on what you've seen and what you know about the um, – uh, the way this team is put together this coming year, uh, will the style on the floor change? Are we still going to see the the running offense, you know, the back and forth, up and down game that uh, we saw last season? You know, Kevin and Austin, I I, I sit around and I'm a tinker. Uh, I'll, I'll get on the board and I'll have an idea in my head. Um, where I sit at home, I always keep a um, a stack of um, um, basketball court drawings. And if I see if something comes in my head, or if I if I'm watching an NBA game and I see something, you know I'm always drawing something up. But when I when I do that, it, it's everything's relative to how fast we can play. I want to play faster. I'm always thinking how can we get faster. You know, for instance, I want our point guards to circle up the court and catch it getting up the court after made baskets. I want to get across half court in three seconds or less. I want to I want to score. You know, you think about the shot clock. There's three 10-second periods there, the first 10, the middle 10, and the last 10. Of those three 10-minute segments, where do you want to get your shots? Do you want to get it in the first 10, the middle 10, or the last 10? Now, a lot of, a lot of schools run a very patterned half-court offense, and that's great. That fits them. 
but I want to score as many baskets as we can in the first 10 seconds of the clock. And that's, and that's where our pace comes in. You know, one of the things that I look at on the bench is what pace are we playing at? Um, and you can tell per 100 possessions, how many, how many possessions would you have per 100 based on your pace of play? Well, we, we want to have as close to 80 possessions per game as we can. And if we're playing at a uh, – when, when, we, when we're at our weakest, when we're not playing very good, the first thing you can look at is pace. Uh, when we're playing a slower pace, that's where we struggle because we're not, we're not set up like that. We're, we're set up to run. When Dotson and uh, Armani Brooks, uh, Morris Dunnigan, um, Rob Gray, when those guys are sprinting to the corners and we've got a rim runner running, putting his nose uh, to the front of that rim, uh, and our foreman who takes it in is trailing in the slot, you know, we're set up for space. Now it's a matter of how can we get the ball in the paint. Because when the ball gets in the paint, good things happen. So, yeah, I mean, our, that, that's who we are. That's how we're going to recruit. Uh, that's how I want to play. Uh, the faster, the better. Coach, you're known as a guy who, you know, follows basketball at all levels. Uh, you know, if you're not coaching basketball or recruiting or drawing up game plans, you're watching basketball, whether it's the NBA, college, or uh, something along that nature. And, uh, you know, you spent time with the Rockets organization as assistant coach. And I'm just curious, when you sit back and, and watch the NBA playoffs as they're going on right now, I mean, you've got a great series with Oklahoma City, Golden State, uh, LeBron doing his thing in the East. How how do you like differentiate that from you know being a coach and being a fan? I, I do love to watch uh, uh, basketball. Um, obviously, I'm very close to uh, uh, Coach Popovich in uh, San Antonio. Uh, the Rockets are near and dear uh, to me. Um, I'm a big fan of Golden State. A big fan of uh, Oklahoma City too. I, I just I, I love the way they play. They're they're bigs. Their bigs cause a problem. Uh, I thought I thought Golden State would struggle with Oklahoma City because when Golden State goes small, um, Oklahoma City is one of the few teams that don't chase them. By chase them, I mean if they, if, if uh, Golden State puts their small lineup in, out there with Draymond Draymond Green at the five and Iguodala, Thompson, uh, Curry, and either Barnes or Livingston, most teams will try to match up with that by playing a small lineup themselves. Oklahoma City, they don't have to do that. They, because their their bigs are so active, and and um, they're a big problem on the offensive glass. I thought that was the biggest difference in the San Antonio and Oklahoma City series. I I, I get how good Westbrook and Durant is, but Cantor and uh, Adams, uh, you, you playing those two uh, cavemen in there together, they they cause they they pose a problem. So when I when I watch, I try to see where advantages are. Um, try to see what the coach is trying to do with his game plan and whether his team's executing it. And obviously, all the coaches left or playing now uh, have outstanding teams or outstanding coaches. So, uh, and I and I try to learn. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, uh, if you're not working to get better, um, I don't know. I don't know how you uh, have success. Billy Donovan obviously has taken over Oklahoma City from Scott Brooks, um, a guy who was uh, part of the championship team here and very near and dear to our hearts, but had been criticized for coaching. And then Billy Donovan comes in, uh, loses that first game uh, to the Spurs, and then comes back and makes adjustments and has uh, sort of, I think now everybody's talking about what a good coach he might be, despite only getting one third place vote for coach of the year. So, I mean, is is that what Oklahoma City needed? Because years ago, this team was, it's going to be in the finals every year with Westbrook and Durant. It's going to every year. And then all of a sudden they fall off and now they're back. Is Donovan the difference, do you think? Let's go back to that coach of the year thing. You, you don't ever want to win coach of the year. That means your team was bad and then you were good. Uh, <laughs> you know, Steve I, Kerr withholding, but... <laughs> yeah, 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 well, it's 73 wins. Uh, had he won 68, he would, probably wouldn't have been coach of the year. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the... the, the um, um, I think the, the Thunder, they had so many changes last year. And, and, and I'm not defending... Uh, uh, Scott Brooks, but you know, uh, uh, Cantor just got there. Adams just got there. Um, you know, they made the big trade. You know, they have so many different guys. You, you could tell that they were a year away. Uh, they needed that experience. Um, and Durant was hurt. I mean, let's let's let's, um, let's let's give Coach Brooks some credit here. You know, Durant's healthy this year. You know, and just recently he looks like Kevin Durant. Uh, well, he didn't look like Kevin Durant last year. He was hurt almost the entire year. 
Uh, Westbrook had to do way too much. He's shooting the ball 30 times a game. Now with Durant back, um, you find out how good Westbrook is. Westbrook is playing the best basketball in his career. He, he's a monster. Um, Westbrook, uh, uh, Durant, um, you know, you think about how good Ibaka's been for him. Um, they actually get better when they put him on the bench and they put Adams or and, and they have Adams and Cantor uh, in there. Um, you know, I thought Perkins really slowed him down at the end of his uh, tenure there in Oklahoma City. So, you know, with Adams, Cantor, Durant, Westbrook, um, the Robertson kid uh, gives him a nice piece. He's kind of the uh, the, the current uh, cephalosha, if you will. Um, I, I just like the way their team is uh, set up, and they've got they got two of the five best players in the NBA. Let's let's give a lot of credit to uh, those guys. But um, I think Billy's been a calming influence on them. Um, I think that they've taught Billy a lot, and he had to learn about the NBA game. When when I went from college to the NBA, I, I wasn't qualified to coach in the NBA. I really wasn't. I, I didn't know enough about it. Um, I didn't know how to take advantage of the rules. Uh, I didn't know how to uh, navigate back-to-backs, uh, how much film to watch, how, how, when do you practice. You don't go from college to NBA knowing any of that. Um, you know, uh, the eight-second rule, getting the ball across half court, and if it goes out of bounds prior to getting across half court, it doesn't reset. I didn't even know that rule. Um, <laughs> so there, there's so many things in the NBA uh, that you don't know. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite sayings is you don't know what you don't know. And, and I'm sure that Billy's, Billy's had to learn a lot, but you can tell he's a lot more comfortable now. Yeah, you just mentioned uh, you know, the Thunder having two of the top five players in the NBA, and uh, one of them, Kevin Durant, is rumored to hit the free agent market this year. And there's a lot of question on whether or not he's going to stay in Oklahoma City, go to a place like Golden State, possibly San Antonio. Now, you spent some time in Norman, which isn't too far from Oklahoma City, and it seems like whenever I watch Thunder games, that's one of the things that I respect about the franchise. It seems almost like a college atmosphere. That team, that community, uh, you know, they're they're almost in tune with each other. They support each other. If, if you're Kevin Durant, do you see him, you know, kind of feeling that community vibe and wanting to stay with Oklahoma City because of that huge support network that he has, or do you see him going to a larger market at the end of the year? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the fans. I, I think Oklahoma City, um, you know, they're kind of a, a newbie NBA team in some of the well, more established NBA cities like Chicago or, or um, uh, Detroit, uh, Cleveland. You know that Rust Belt up there, um, out west, or uh, Miami Heat, New York Knicks, Lakers. You know those are the those are the NBA teams that's been around forever. But Oklahoma City is a very underrated market. They have, I think that um, you know it's hard to say who has the best fans. I mean that's you're always going to say your your team or your city has the best fans. But that home court that uh, Oklahoma City. Uh, Thunder have with that fan base. I, I, Golden State and Oklahoma City are different than the other teams, in my opinion. Um, that's a tough place to play. I mean, they rev it up, and and they've learned to be NBA fans too. You know, um, they got a taste of it during Hurricane Katrina, when the New Orleans, um, at the time, New Orleans Hornets um, had to relocate. When they relocated in Oklahoma City, and, and they played their that I think they played two seasons there, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Byron Scott was the coach, David West, uh, Tyson Chandler, uh, obviously Chris Paul, J.R. Smith. Uh, they had a really good team. And, and, and those fans in Oklahoma City really attached themselves to, to uh, that New Orleans team. So now here comes uh, the Seattle Supersonics relocating Oklahoma City, and they were ready, and uh, they have great fans. And Oklahoma City is a great area. I mean, uh, it may not be the Knicks, it may not be the Lakers, um, but I can see Kevin Durant staying there and getting a statue. I mean, there'll be a statue mm -hmm. of him outside that building. And and wherever he goes at this point in his career, there will be no statues. He's he, to me, he's an Oklahoma City Thunder guy. Um, 
And I hope he stays there. I hope he stays there for himself, and I hope he stays there for those fans. So one thing, obviously, it's a big deal here in Houston would be the uh, the Rockets currently searching for a head coach. And there are some names that are rumored swirling around, nothing concrete as of yet, as of the time we're recording this. But you've been there. You've been uh, the coach of that team. You have a relationship with James Harden. We've seen him out at U of H games a few times this season. What does an incoming head coach of this team need to do to get the ship righted? Because there's talent on this team, but it is not being realized in terms of wins and losses. Yeah, I think every coach has a uh, plan. Um, you, you have a, a, a system, a philosophy. Um, and really all a system and a philosophy is, is how do you want your team to play at both ends? You know, if you close your eyes and you visualize what your team, what you want your team to look like when the other team has the ball, how do you want to guard the ball? How do you want to guard ball screens? Um, the emphasis on transition defense. Are you more interested in transition defense or offensive rebounding? Um, you know, all those questions have to be answered. But I think there's there's so many really, really good coaches in the NBA. But I think they've got to um, hire, hire a coach that has a, a distinct, um, concise plan. He, he can't be all over the place. There's, there's, there's some coaches that they, it's a shotgun approach. They try to be good at 20 different things, and they wind up being good at nothing. Um, you know, <laughs> You have you have a defense and you have you have an offense. How do you want to play with the ball and how do you want to play when the other team has the ball? What what's your plan? I think I think that's where it starts. But it but they've got to really focus on on getting a coach that that has um, has the right approach to that. Because James is a challenge. Um, I think all great players are. I mean I've said I've sat on that uh, on that bench and, and coached against all those teams. Kevin Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant is a uh, tough dude now. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Westbrook, those guys have their own idea about what to do, and they usually do it. So uh, <laughs> one thing I learned about coaching in the NBA, you better coach one eye open and one ear closed. That means you better not try to see everything and hear everything. If you do, it'll drive you crazy. Now, Coach, we definitely appreciate you taking the time and joining us this week on the uh, Weekly Brew Podcast. And uh, as we understand, you've got some basketball camps coming up this summer. And for those that are interested in uh, you know, signing up for those, signing up their kids, uh, what is the best way for them to uh, find out more information? abcsportscamps.com slash Kelvin Sampson Basketball Camp. Make sure to go check out those Kelvin Sampson basketball camps. Uh, they start in June, and uh, they're open from ages 2nd grade through 12th grade. Uh, but, Coach, thanks again for joining us this week on the podcast, and uh, best of luck during the recruiting season, the summer camps. Enjoying a little bit of vacation before you uh, gear up for the 2016-2017 season. Kevin and Austin, this arguably is the best interview I've done in my career. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you so much, Coach. All right, thanks, Coach. All right, thanks, guys. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. It's no secret that this podcast endorses high-quality journalism, and if you recall in episode 13, Kevin gave quite a touching tribute following ESPN's decision to end Grantland. Our next guest on The Weekly Brew is a former Grantland staff writer, and that's Jason Concepcion, who was hired as a writer for The Ringer back in March, which is a new digital venture from Bill Simmons that launches this summer. Jason, thanks for joining us this week. And before we get started, how is everything going with you up in New York, and what does the preparation process look like as The Ringer prepares to launch? Preparation process, wow. I um, Mostly right now, it's... <laughs> trying to get up to game speed, so to speak, so that we're ready for the turn of the internet, the speed of the internet once we do launch, and just kind of trying to get all our launch stories kind of in, in, into stages of readiness so that we can, we can do them. For, I mean, just for me, like, it's just a super, like, I've got the NBA plus Game of Thrones, and then the um, stories that I'm working on for launch, so um, what it looks like is this kind of like, um, it looks like a like a boat that's on fire out at sea <laughs> with like people running around on the deck. So I think a lot of folks that, that listen may be more familiar with your Twitter handle than your actual name, at Network. Of course, you have a lot of Twitter followers, and deservedly so. But uh, And then you've also been writing for the Ringer Newsletter, which if our listeners have not signed up for yet, we highly recommend it. And your most recent piece, you're talking about uh, what's going on up there with the Knicks. Phil Jackson, the triangle, Jeff Hornacek does not seem to be a fit. Kind of a surprise that Kurt Rambis wasn't hired there. What, what is happening? What's the deal with the triangle? It strikes me as being kind of like the force. No one really understands it. It doesn't seem to work for everyone, and Phil Jackson 
Jackson's kind of like the Yoda that's sort of trying to make it all work. What's going to happen with this franchise? Well, the Triangle, I mean, it's complicated. The Triangle still obviously um, has a very deep relationship to the Triangle offense. and It's an offense based on principles like egalitarian principles of movement. Um, lots of offenses have certain Triangle principles um, in terms of the way people cut and when they cut. Um, what makes a triangle triangle? The triangle is just primarily the way it's based out of the elbows, um, and so that are, therefore it, it puts a premium like on passing big men, big men who can make decisions. I think in terms of the Knicks, the thing that's not so great about the triangle is there's just so many reads, so many cuts, so many kind of prescribed movements that. Um, it's not it's so egalitarian that it's not it's not often the case that you want to give certain players the power to dictate an offense and that's what it's set up to do um sorry manchester united just won, uh, won the fa cup <laughs> and um uh and so therefore it's like it's just complicated it's it's complicated for players to learn it's the kind of offense where it's if it's not executed at top speed, um, its effectiveness falls off. And especially the team the Knicks are, where it's like you're not really sure who's sticking around, who's going to be here, where, what kind of stability you're going to have, um, it's really hard to implement it. And that's why you see the Knicks do things like uh, like uh, give Sasha Vujicic a, a contract in the NBA in the year 2016 because <laughs> – the guy knows how to run the triangle, and if you need somebody on the floor who actually knows how to run it, um, so the addition of Hornacek was a surprise because he's not—he doesn't—he's um, not immediately. You don't think triangle when you think Jeff Hornacek. He ran kind of like a modern offense in, in Phoenix. Um, although I guess when he um, was playing in his early days as a player, um, Phoenix did run the triangle, so there's that kind of connection. But you know, it remains to be seen, like how how dedicated he's going to be to the triangle offense yeah that's what i wonder about is he going to have the freedom to sort of mold the offense uh into his own you know uh vision i guess and chris that's we're seeing is obviously is going to be a huge part of that or is it going to be the same adherence to phil jackson's philosophy the triangle basically running it from the top down or will hornacek have a bit more freedom to open it up uh that remains to be seen i mean from from everything i've seen um that's been said he will have that freedom but you know we'll see i mean that that was Derek Fisher not Derek Fisher not running uh, the triangle in a pure form is kind of the reason that was given for uh, why he was let go. I don't, I don't think that that's um, I think that's kind of true, and I don't think it's the only reason, but I do think that was a factor. So it, that remains to be seen, like how how dogmatic Bill is going to be about running pure triangle principles. Um, it's good. I mean, it's like in just on the. As a Knicks fan, it's great. You need, it's like uh, I think it's great that Kristaps is not going to be uh, asked to post up like a ton. As we're a Houston based podcast, uh, the Rockets' head coaching vacancy seems to be an ongoing concern uh, for those that are fans of the Rockets. And uh, it doesn't seem like the Rockets are making much progress in terms of hiring a head coach. It seems like they're interviewing people each day. But one of the names that has emerged as essentially one of the finalists is Mike D'Antoni, who coached with the Knicks, uh, you know, for four straight four years uh, from 2008 to 2012 when he resigned. But he didn't really have as much success there as he did in Phoenix. And uh, He's a guy that, you know, is going to run that up-tempo offense, which would cater to a guy like James Harden. But for me, when I look at the Rockets, it doesn't seem like a great cultural fit. It seems that they need somebody that is, you know, more defensive-focused. What can you tell us about Dan Tony, and do you think he would be a good fit for the Rockets organization? I actually do. I think that would be, in theory, in a vacuum, it would be a great spot for him. I think there's certain, um, like, personality-slash-cultural things, as you say, that might make it tough, but that's like the case anywhere. You're going to have to deal with the players, the culture of the players. I think uh, once Dwight makes his decision, I think that becomes easier because you don't have two uh, players who are pulling down max or near max salaries who like hate each other. So that <laughs> helps. Um, I think they would need, they need more shooting in order to really run D'Antoni's offense. But 
defense, I think his defensive shortcomings are a little overblown. I mean, you look at his, his Phoenix teams are always middle, like av- league average defense or a little bit better. They were never abjectly terrible. I would say the one thing about D'Antoni is he's not really, he doesn't really have a an overarching defensive philosophy in the way that like you would say Thibodeau does where it's like they, they have a, a a scheme. It was more like just, you know, D up your guy and help each other. But it wasn't, you know, it, it was very simple in that sense, but it wasn't, it, it's not like he just issued defense. Like that's as his reputation says, I think he's, he's a fine, he's an okay defensive coach. And I think if he gets, the right staff, it, that, that wouldn't be a problem. So you follow the NBA playoffs uh, and, and you tweet about it as much and as amusingly as anyone that I'm aware of. And I'm just curious, so far throughout what has been obviously a historic season for the Golden State Warriors in the regular season and then uh, a really stellar playoffs push by the Thunder, what has stood out most to you so far throughout the playoffs and what's made the, the most lasting impression to you out of what you've seen thus far? Honestly, I would say, well, I mean, it's just like they're in the East, but the way the Cavs are kind of gelling as a team mm-hmm. um, with the addition of Titanic Fry playing at the same time as Kevin Love, like that kind of like spacing has really opened up their offense. Um, and they just kind of like for a team that over the course of the year, there have been certain questions about like how guys get along and um, LeBron's relationship with his teammates and like, is he closer with his ex teammates? They really seem to have come together. I mean, winning really helps um, culture, but at the same time, like they were winning when they were, when people were questioning whether they liked each other. Um, And it's just been really, it's been really awesome. I don't, I don't know, like, can they beat the Warriors or the Thunder? You know, like let's, I'm just really enjoying what I'm seeing from them. Like you're really seeing like a team that's that's coming together like before your eyes. We will not know until they play whoever comes out of the Western Conference, which, uh, I mean, if I had to guess, would still be Golden State, but obviously Oklahoma City looking good too. So I want to talk about Game of Thrones with you because you have written uh, a lot about Game of Thrones, spilled as much ink as anyone I know. And I think that it is... um, it's amazing what a well that is of sort of uh, looking to modern culture and drawing parallels and the meaningfulness of that show to a lot of people. And just having written so much about it and obviously connected with it yourself, what is it about that show that makes it such a touchstone for audiences all over the country? That's a great question. Um, I think there's something about its depiction of politics that is kind of seems very true even today. Like in a, in a more in our modern world, like there's something about like the um, zero sum nature of their politics and the way everything a character does in that show um, has several levels of meaning to it. Like there's the out meaning, there's and then there's the secondary and tertiary um, strategies that they're that they're going for. You know, it's like if if um, Cersei is talking to the Tyrells about uh, storming the Sept of Baylor and getting back the, the Tyrell heirs from like, freeing them from prison. There's the surface level where that's really the right move, and then there's the tertiary level where, and you know, also if the Tyrell kids get killed in this, this is kind of good for me. You know, like so there's there's that aspect to it, and I think that. Um, there's also something about watching characters in a super, super, super long form format on television grow. Um, that's just kind of like very magnetic. That's just something that's entrancing to people. You know, I think I think there's a lot of parallels to the way the the way the shape and form of our current world is seen there, um, which is. You know, which makes it great fiction. I think uh, one of the interesting things about Game of Thrones is just how much of a cultural phenomenon it actually is. I mean, there are Game of Thrones watch parties at bars here in Houston, which I think is just absolutely fascinating. But, you know, you mentioned the political aspect and how it kind of integrates a little bit with our society and culture now. So I'm kind of curious from your perspective, from New York, you've got a presidential candidate and Donald Trump and a former New York Senator Hillary Clinton that are both going to be the presumptive nominees for the respective parties come November's election. If you're comparing them to Game of Thrones characters, how would they fit in and who do you think they would actually kind of correlate with? 
Oh, man. Trump is kind of a... He's not a one-to-one match, but he's he's like the high sparrow crossed with Joffrey. <laughs> a little bit where he's got like... Um, like, obviously, the high sparrow is very concerned about like um, class inequality and the oppression of he's got like this very Bernie aspect to him where it's like the rich against the poor and the class struggle that plays into Trump as well but Trump has this more like nativist slash uh, like uh, raw racism to him which doesn't really <laughs> correlate to, to either um, kind of like any of the characters in the show so I like I think Joffrey just because he was like uh he was just like a, a slave to his own desires. Like he's just a pure mm-hmm. teenager who like couldn't couldn't he he would he didn't have a lot of inhibitions and and zero impulse control. He was gonna if he wanted to shoot a crossbow <laughs> like at a woman, he would do it. Um, let's see, Hillary, very calculating, not not very. I guess kind of like a. Um, Oh, man, she's tough, too, because she's calculating and obviously intelligent, probably just doesn't project a lot of human warmth, like, naturally. <laughs> um, uh, I guess, like, some kind of, like, maybe Tyrion, kind of, in a way, in, in, the, in the way that the characters, the, like, the vast majority of characters in Game of Thrones, um, the general population just don't relate to him um, <laughs> even though he's in theory good at what he does they're just not apt to warm up to him on, on short notice that that was a good pull i think obviously you are as uh as plugged into that show as anyone else uh that we are aware of but uh i, I my pick personally for hillary would have to be cersei i think that coldness you're speaking to um really ties in well there uh, i'm not sure if she is uh as diabolical but but you never know we may find out come election time but so I'm curious, obviously you are a terrific writer. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that of many people. I really enjoy your work, and uh, it, it makes great sense that you are where you are. But I'm curious how you got there. How did you uh, get discovered, or how were you first hooked up with Grantland and Bill Simmons? Well, I mean, it's really, I just, I, they got me off the Internet. I was tweeting about basketball, um, and through that, uh, my follower count steadily grew, which was not really the goal, but just kind of happened. And through there, some other spaces asked me if I wanted to write a couple things. I wrote for Classical, I wrote for Deadspin, I wrote for SB Nation, a couple pieces here and there. And I guess that proved that I could write in larger than 140 character formats. And so <laughs> then um, I was contacted by some the guys at Grantland, um, kind of like in a provisional basis. You want to try and write a couple of things for our shoot around, some basketball stuff? Sure. And from there, it just it grew into a full-time thing. I got lucky. I got lucky, I suppose you could say. Never stop tweeting, everybody. <laughs> That's always good advice. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious. It seems like just from, from an outsider's perspective, I mean, just the, the, the network of writers and journalists and, uh, you know, content creators, both at Grantland and The Ringer, is just phenomenal. And what is it like working in that type of atmosphere? And how would you kind of describe those work dynamics? It's like terrifying and great at the same time because you, you know, at Grantland, it was just like, you know, we had Brian Phillips and we had um, just Wesley and we, you know, it's like Molly, like just people that were just like killer, like would write stuff, Alex Papadimus, where it's used, they would write stuff and you're just like, like, that's <laughs> really good. And so it forced you to bring it like just every time you, sat down to write something you just really 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 have to bring it um and that's exciting and that, that's the same kind of thing there is the ringer we had um you know we've had a couple of staff meetings where we we're just pitching stuff around and it's like you listen to people's ideas and it's like yeah that's everybody here is really smart it's gonna be good um it's just really exciting to be around like creative people who are just crazy smart and like good at what they do it's really it's invigorating it's really fun 
Now, kind of on a sports perspective, it seems like every time you have great players that play together, they always elevate their game. And I would argue that the Ringer is just a collection of great writers. How much does that force you to elevate your your game in a sense in terms of producing content week in and week out? Uh, I mean, it's really it it is a it is a like flaming atomic sun under your seat, like at all times, <laughs> forcing you to write really force you to write about really interesting topics and write about them really well um yeah i mean everybody that we have right now just like an absolute crusher um (laughs) and so you you really feel like you you know to to justify the fact that you draw a paycheck like you really have to bring it like all the time at least i mean i feel that way i'm sure like um every writer i've ever talked to is like has that feeling of oh man i've got to like do something great right now you know because i'm sure you guys know like you know, writing is like this cycle of like self-loathing where it's like you write <laughs> yeah. something, you turn it in and there's like a response. And if people like it, you're like, feel great about yourself for like a day. <laughs> and then you sit down to write the next thing and you're like, I forgot how to write. I don't know how to do this. Like, in the 24 hours since I, in the 24 hours since that thing come, came out, I for, completely forgot how to write at all. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. How do I do this? And then, you know, the, I hate myself. What am I going to do? And that just is like this constant cycle. Um, so it's healthy, you know, that's a healthy way to live. <laughs> I could not relate more, honestly. And that's, that's exactly what my day in and day out is like, is that desperate need for feedback, which uh, listeners of this podcast are very familiar with me begging for iTunes reviews and the like. But I'm curious. Uh, so, I mean, I consider Grantland uh, to be extremely successful in terms of what it produced and the value that it had to people, you know, in their hearts and minds. And I, I anticipate much the same for The Ringer. You know, uh, I see a lot of the same writers there, a lot of the same mentality philosophy. I'm curious, is there um, a lesson that uh, other organizations, media outlets can learn from the way that Grantland and The Ringer are doing things? Or is that really just like a, a sort of Bill Simmons magic that you can't reproduce anywhere else. Yeah, I don't know. If, I, I think I'm too close to it to really know if there's a lesson. Like, um, I think that's, you know, like the number one thing I take out of it is just surround yourself with people who aren't assholes, who are smart, who want to do really good work, you know, whatever that may be. I mean, I sometimes like the stuff that we do is is silly and can seem silly and can seem like about really like, um, lightweight stuff, you know, sports by and large on a day in and day out basis is not like life and death, but you know, we take it really seriously and we take like television really seriously. We take everything in culture really seriously and, um, you know, just surround yourself with people like that and just hope everything works out for the best. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's just out of your control when you're in this business. Yeah, that's great insight. And uh, Jason, we definitely appreciate you joining us this week on the podcast. And, uh, you know, you're very active on social media, as you just told us a few minutes ago, never stop tweeting. For those that are interested in following your work, whether it's on Twitter, on your Tumblr page, which I highly recommend checking out, or, you know, even on uh, The Ringer, what is the best way for them to not only follow you, but also find your work? Uh, I would uh, follow The Ringer Facebook page. That's where you'll get the most updates about and sign up for our newsletter. So... From there, you'll find our whole stable of fantastic writers, our podcasts, and you'll know when the site launches in a proper fashion, which should be sometime <laughs> in June, but don't ask me for a, for a real date. All right. Well, Jason, we definitely appreciate you joining us this week on the Re- Weekly Brew Podcast. And for those that are interested in following his work on Twitter, you can check out his Twitter handle. That's at network, and that's N-E-T-W-3-R-K. Jason, we appreciate it. Thank you. Closing time. Another great episode of the Weekly Brew Podcast. And again, this has been episode number 44. Uh, Big shout out to Coach Sampson and Jason Concepcion for joining us this week on the show. I thought both guests were absolutely phenomenal. Yes, uh, I was particularly pleased. Obviously, uh, Kelvin Sampson, there's really no one in the world that I enjoy talking basketball with more. And I think he's a terrific coach. I think he's a terrific human being. He's a terrific basketball mind. So I always appreciate his insight. And I really appreciate him talking not only uh, about the Cougars and sort of the incoming new players they have in that program, which I'm excited 
excited about and will be covering, but also talking about the NBA and just basketball uh, as a whole because uh, that guy watches as much basketball as anybody that I am aware of, and, uh, and it really has a keen insight, so I always enjoy hearing about it. And, and Jason Concepcion, I mean, it is no secret on this podcast um, what uh, you could even say I'm a fanboy, I guess is the term, of Bill Simmons and his work and the projects he put together at ESPN with Grantland and now at HBO with uh, The Ringer and Any Given Wednesday, and uh, Jason Concepcion, sort of a, a protege of Bill Simmons is so um, I'm always happy to hear about what it's like working for Simmons what the uh, the atmosphere was like there how that got put together because we were huge fans of uh, at network is his uh, Twitter handle as he's uh, often more commonly known although his name is getting some recognition in its own right but uh, but kind of a kind of a thrilling experience only one degree away from Bill Simmons so I mean do you think that as a result of this Bill Simmons will have heard of me by the end of this week I'm not sure by the end of the week but uh, I'm gonna say by episode 100 Bill Simmons comes on the podcast you you're calling that right now? Wow. I I don't think I could interview him, though. I think I would kind of geek out in a way that, like, I was able to be professional for, for Concepcion, but Bill Simmons, I don't There's know. There's several Bill Simmons out there. I didn't specify that we were talking well, about HBO Bill and Simmons? the Ringer Bill Simmons. But yeah, that's the one I want. All right. We'll, we'll work on it. It is my dream, of course, to, uh, to eventually work for that guy because it seems like he is not only uh, a talented writer and sports mind, of course, but really uh, excels at the management of people. And, uh, and I crave that sort of environment. So I don't know if it exists anywhere else outside of what used to be Grantland, what is now uh, the ringer but um it would be it would be a dream location for me to work for sure yeah absolutely uh bill simmons is a phenomenal talent and uh definitely looking forward to the ringers launch which will happen in june as jason mentioned during our podcast also any given wednesday premieres this summer and if you haven't seen the trailer for it it's it's absolutely fantastic uh, definitely looking forward to seeing what bill simmons produces at hbo uh, but sign up for the newsletter. That's the important thing. Jason was here to plug the newsletter for The Ringers. Go to TheRinger.com. I signed up for it. It's actually one of the few emails that I look forward to getting uh, once or twice a week is The Ringer newsletter. Always well written. It's basically a taste of what you'll be getting from the website uh, come summertime. But it is uh, you know everything from pop culture to sports. The biggest things going on in the sports world uh, often links to the great podcasts they have over there. I'm a big fan of all of them. So go to TheRinger.com and uh, sign up for the newsletter and uh, and you'll enjoy it. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, and speaking of signing up for newsletters, we want you to uh, sign up for our content. And you can do that by searching Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We put great stuff up there each week. Also, you can go to weeklybrewcast.com find all of our content there that we post each Monday morning. And uh, last but not least, we want you to go to iTunes. Tell us what you like about the show. Give us some reviews. Give us some positive feedback. Give us segment ideas. If there's a certain guest or topic that you want us to discuss, let us know. Don't be afraid to give us five stars and let us know. And uh, unfortunately, I think you really should be afraid not to do anything but give us five stars. That's what I would like to inspire fear in the people who have not reviewed us yet. Um, I'm not sure if that's legal necessarily. I'm going to have my lawyers look into it. But I, I think I can officially say that I am I'm now threatening listeners who have not left reviews. Uh, we're coming for you. Leave those reviews and you have nothing to fear. Sort of like the blood over your uh, over your doorpost on Passover. It's a that's a very aggressive take, Kevin. But uh, <laughs> but it is what it is. But uh, we had a fun episode this week, and again, Jeremy Paxton and Dolores Lozano had the week off. So, Kevin, it it's been a blast going back and forth with you this uh, entire week. And uh, I guess as the song says, it's just the two of us. And uh, just the two of us. Okay, last week you gave your top five. Hottest bods this mm-hmm. week. You break out the vocals. Absolutely. I, mean, I am. I, am I wonder what's next. So many talents. We've I, just scratched the surface of what I'm capable of. I, I'm very intrigued. So uh, make sure to tune into episode 45 of the Weekly Brew Podcast next week. But in the meantime, this has been episode 44 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. And again, thanks to Coach Kelvin Sampson at the University of Houston and Jason Concepcion from The Ringer of HBO for joining us on the podcast. But I had a blast. Kevin, thanks for joining us this week. And for my co-host, Kevin Cook, I'm Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. And while the listeners out there remember, no matter who you are, what you do, or where you go this week, always, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 